As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hayes Show. Welcome along to the show. The Phil Hayes Show brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. Dan here from The Square Ball along with Michael and Phil Hay from The Athletic as well. Uh, we're twice weekly now, uh, Mondays and Fridays loosely. We've kind of varied things up a little bit as we've had no football uh, to talk about, Phil. But we are here uh, ploughing on nonetheless. Yes, I'll just drop this in and say I'm away next week, so we will be absent for the early part of the week, but we will be back for Marsh's pre-Villa press conference, which we all need to hear, really, don't we? Not to mention the game itself, which we all need to see. Absolutely desperate for football oh, yeah. now. Need some uh, badly. If you want to read Phil's stuff in the meantime on the website, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Pound a month for six months to read The Athletic. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Yeah, the show is twice a week. So Monday we react to the game and Friday we preview the game. We're nearly there. We're nearly there. Let's have a little um, dabble in the waters of the update then of the stuff that's happened across the last few days. And we are in an international break now, even though it seemed to seamlessly flow from the lack of football before it. It is like an international break all season long or certainly in the first half of it. But we are getting there. Uh, Leeds are trying as best they can to tick over. I think they'll be pretty grateful that there are a fair few players away who will get games and will get some some hard training sessions away with their countries. Uh, they have been playing sort of inter-squad games behind closed doors. They've got a friendly today, again, behind closed doors, so no crowd there, but it's just a, a fitness exercise and, and match fitness exercise more than anything. We, I, I spoke to... Joe Gelhart and Sam Greenwood yesterday um, as part of the launch of the, the latest Leeds um, a documentary that's out, Academy Dreams, um, which is on Amazon at the moment. And Gilhart was talking about last season and the fact that the way it was set up and the way uh, the, the nature of his involvement in other under-23s or 21s as it is now, they were getting kind of limited minutes with the 23s because they were involved with the first-team squad, but they were getting very few minutes with the first-team squad because they want kind of leading players that, that Bielsa was using and he said you know it does really affect your match sharpness that and it affects how good you are and there's the scope to do loads of running at the training ground loads of fitness work this that and the other but it just isn't the same and I think that's probably the, the little window that Leeds are in at the moment Marsh I would imagine will be concerned about the idea of a month of downtime when they weren't expecting it and, and weren't planning for it so yeah little games here and there we'll, we'll keep them going and hopefully keep them fresh but it's it's going to be pretty intriguing to see what the performance is like against Villa because we are talking basically the you know the full stretch of four weeks away from from the season. It's a little bit like when you spend too much time on the sofa, isn't it? And then you try and get up after being prone for a long time. 
and it all hurts and you can't do it properly. It takes you a while to walk to the kitchen to put the kettle on. Yeah, I'd like to think to be a little bit fitter than that. It's it's a little bit like if you consider yourself to be a, a runner from time to time and you don't do it for three months and then you try to go out for a 5k run and you think, oh, this would be easy. And then after a, a kilometre, you're dying and your legs are, are giving up on you. I thought you were going to say a five minute run then. <laughs> well, that's, that's what it turns into. I mean, these guys are somewhat more athletic than us three. Uh, so we'll we'll be fine, basically. Hey, listen, I, I walked 92 miles. Don't you uh, cuss my athleticism? You did, without did, complaining yeah. once. Um, um, no, enough about us anyway. Um, on the internationals, we don't need to go through them all. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, Melier, question marks over not making the full France squad at this stage? Because he's still in the 21s, isn't he? It's been spoken about a lot, this, the idea of him being a future um, France number one. And Leeds certainly think he's got that potential. I've written a piece about this for next week, early next week the kind of message that is always given to him, which is that you you came to England as a French goalkeeper in your time in England, in your time in the Premier League, you have the scope to become the French goalkeeper. And there's, you know, there's a certain dynamic with the France squad because they've got Hugo Lloris, who's been an international for them since 2008, you know, the point at which Melier was all of eight years old. He's well over 100 caps now. He's very close to becoming record appearance maker for France. He's catching up on Lillian Turam and, and we'll go past him during the World Cup. Uh, but Lloris um, pulled out of the squad for the, the Nations League game that um, the games that France have because of a thigh strain, which kind of brought to mind the, the question of how longer term do France intend to replace him? Because that must be on the mind of Didier Deschamps that Lloris can't go on forever. And you do wonder whether on the other side of the World Cup, Lloris might start to ask himself how much longer he wants to balance the sort of dual responsibility of international football and also club football at, at Tottenham where he's he's still number one and, and has a contract until 2024. And when he goes, when he decides to to quit international football, then there becomes the question of um, of who steps in. So, you know, France have more experienced goalkeepers than Melier. They have um, Magana, AC Milan. They also have um, Areola down at um, West Ham United. But the decision last week when Lloris pulled out was to pull in a keeper called Alban Lafont, who some people might know plays at Nantes. He's only 23, but actually extremely experienced and kind of on a similar path to Melier in that he went through a lot of the youth levels with France, was under-21s keeper for a long time, and it was him graduating from that and moving up that really opened the door for Melier to become regular for the under-21s, which he, he, kept, he has been. he kept Melier out of the 21s quite a lot, didn't he? He did, and he's an extremely good keeper, and he, he's already got well over 200 league appearances in France, so it's not that he's um, in any way raw, but he's never been capped by France. So, you know, this is potentially, if he was to play, you know, this is a, a kind of first opportunity for him to, to dip his toe into to full international football. But from what I can gather, the feeling with the, the, the French coaching staff is that it is better for Melier to sit in the 21s and play at the moment, particularly because the European Under-21 Championship is coming up next summer um, in Romania and Georgia. France will, I think, have a, a decent chance at that. They qualified very easily, conceding very few goals in, in the 10 games that they played. They haven't won that since 1988, so they, they want to take a strong squad and they'll, they'll want to compete strongly. But that will be a last hurrah for Melier. He, I think, will be 23 at that point. And he qualifies on the basis that he was young enough to um, to be eligible for under-21s football when the qualifying campaign started. But, you know, he is in kind of in the final throes of that. This will be his last season. And after that, I think you'll see him more seriously knocking on the door of a, of a full France call-up. But it's quite interesting that of all the clubs that are looking closely at Melier, who I think is fair to say now has replaced Rafinha and Phillips as 
you know, probably the highest value asset in the squad at Leeds. I suspect if if clubs were bidding for everybody in the squad at Ellen Road, he would be the one who who would command the, the highest fee. It's quite interesting that Spurs are one of the clubs who are looking at him because Loris is, you know, getting into his mid thirties now. Um, he is out of contract in two thousand and twenty four, and you would assume that Tottenham would now be looking at a, a succession plan for him. So yeah, all in all, pretty eventful time for for Millie, who I think this season has looked better than he ever has. Um, I think the basics have improved. I think all round he's looking extremely assured, looking like a, a top class goalkeeper, which is why I kind of thought that when the opportunity did open up for him to to go into the France squad, um, the coaching staff there might take it. But if you if you cast your eye over Lafont, he is a really, really good goalkeeper. So I do understand that decision. It's funny, isn't it, how protective we get over our players when it comes to international football. And I go all the way back to like Tony DiRigo um, not playing at left-back when Stuart Pearce was, you know, the, the, the stalwart in there for years. David Batty um, playing for England as well. And more recently, like Calvin Phillips, when people were digging him out for not being good enough to play for England and they ended up as England's player of the year but now he's not with us anymore I'm not so bothered and also I think that, his, that surprises me greatly <laughs> yeah. his, his place is uh, far from guaranteed as well I think with Bellingham on the rise but I always used to feel like that with Nigel Martin as well yeah. particularly the late David Seaman years when he was not as good as he has been I thought just put, put Nigel in for God's sake I, I was just going to mention Martin because I think that's probably looking at Leeds history might well be one of the players who you'd feel most aggrieved about but if you were being totally objective about it, you would say that he had the misfortune of being a you know, top-level, top-class keeper at the same time as David Seaman was exactly the same. And, and coach after coach seemed to lean towards Seaman rather than, than Martin. We always had this in Scotland. That, that's because they are Leeds-hating bastards, Phil. Is, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah 100%. Um, <laughs> we, we used to have this in Scotland because obviously there was there is the idea up there that everything and anything is slanted in favour of the old firm. So you would look at your own players and think countless players, Hearts players here who should be in the Scotland squad, very few of whom ever got called up. And and if you go back, you know, over the years, considering that Hearts are arguably the third biggest club in Scotland, although, you know, you get some argument from Aberdeen and um, Hibs, ho-ho, but not that many Hearts players have been represented by Scotland comparatively, given that it is a, a small country with you know, a kind of small selection of clubs in it. So yeah, you do get pressure about your own. Absolutely. And it is, the inclination is to look at Millie and say, wait a minute, he's, he's, you know, he's young, he's first choice in the Premier League, he's looking better and better. Why isn't he in the squad? But then if you watch some of Lafont, um, I think Lafont is likely to end up at a, a much bigger club than not at some stage in his career. I go back to the, um, to the noughties actually, and my relationship with England of, of being quite disinterested because I didn't like most of the players <laughs> you know who were who were playing for the for the national team, but you're kind of obliged to get behind them because, um, well, you know, if you're English, you're likely to support England. Brave John Terry. Do you think that's a generational thing though? Because when when I speak to people who are older than us, um, of which there are still some, they seem to give you the impression that going back to the '60s and the '70s and, and the '80s and everything else, there was nothing like the same sort of challenge. And I might be reading this completely wrong, but the same sort of challenge to feel engaged with the national team on the basis of who was in it. Whereas I feel like with our generation and the generation below, the individual names and faces who are in the average lineup or the average squad do kind of dictate how much you care and whether you're bothered and how motivated you are by by the results. I mean, I've always been a club man over a country man, which might be something about being Scottish, really. But it's, um, yeah, I, I do sometimes feel like it. it's difficult, for example, I guess, to be... A club like Leeds who don't like certain players over the Pennines 
and then to put that aside uh, when it comes round to international football can be done. I but, think I think as well it's probably down to the rise of the internet and like football has morphed into almost a cult of personality. If you like, you see how people like Cristiano Ronaldo have been lionised, for example. Very much these these individual players become individual stars. And I know, like I look at my son's generation and they are all caught up on individuals and they, they all know the stats for each of the individuals in FIFA and what they score out of 100 and all that sort of stuff. So I just think it's, it's just changed around us during our lifetime. There are definitely people who seem to support players rather than clubs if that makes sense Twitter, um, they're normally Twitter weirdos though, aren't they a lot of them they <laughs> yes um, Rory Smith in the New York Times once did a piece on Rangers and Celtic which had this comical but actually very necessary disclaimer at the bottom which said there are some people out there who believe that Rangers no longer exist because they folded you know many years ago they went into um, liquidation and therefore are a different club there are equally other people who believe that it is the same club and that they still have 50 odd titles and everything else and he was saying on Twitter that after a subsequent piece about Neymar and just the feedback from it, he said, in my, he was saying in, in the top three of most volatile things to write about and actually things that I never ever want to write about again, Neymar, Rangers and Celtic and anything to do with Israel and Palestine, like the, the fallout from it is just massive. And, and, the, and the, the last one, I think, to be fair, has such, um, such political connotations um, and nuances in it that that's a completely different thing altogether. But I think the Neymar one was the point he was making that you know, there are people out there who love Neymar and love him to the point where it doesn't really matter who he's playing for or, or what he's doing or this, that and the other. They just will not hear a bad word said about him. They won't hear anything that's kind of touching on grey areas as opposed to being black and white of this guy is, is sensational. So you, you're absolutely right. But I also feel as if Club football has just become more and more important as time has gone on. I think the Champions League has almost risen to the point where it seems to matter to people. And I think people within the game, actually, as much as things like the World Cup and, and the Euros, it's every bit as big or, or as seen as being every bit as prestigious, even though it quite clearly isn't. So international football, I think from time to time, struggles to retain the attention that it would like. I wonder if it's a slight problem as well, that there is just so much football at the moment. And sometimes it's difficult to know exactly how to spread your attention. In terms of polarising opinions, none more so than Victor Orta and the work he's done at Leeds. Um, have you seen the Telegraph interview that he's done this week talking about basically where Leeds are in the in the pecking order at the minute and spoke about Bielsa and Marsh and other things? What, what, what did you make of that? It was very similar to a lot of what was said by Radzani in the interview that he did with us and also the interview you did with Angus Kinnear um, on the Square Ball podcast. Are you suggesting they're the, coordinating their messaging here? Well, well, you would like to think that within a certain <laughs> boardroom they would all agree on things, you know. Otherwise, um, otherwise, yes, it would be quite, quite scattergun. Essentially saying he felt Bielsa had to go, although interestingly, didn't really get into any of the details of why, you know, didn't want to, I think, or, or didn't choose to dig into the exact reasons why why they'd done it. I think Radrazani went a little bit further with that and certainly Kinnear did as well. The bit that, that jumped out to me more than anything was when he was asked about what Leeds prospects are in this division. And he said, and I think he's absolutely right to say this, and, and I would agree that breaking into the top six at the moment is nigh on impossible. You know, it is... It's not to say that it couldn't be done as a one-off, but to be a top six side, Leeds need an awful lot of things to change and an awful lot of things to, to happen. And it's a, a bit of a sad reflection on the Premier League. But in fairness, you could say a lot about the, the major leagues around Europe, you know, that, that would be very similar. Um, not so different in Spain, not so different in Italy, not so different in particularly in Germany, where Bayern Munich just seem like they're going to win the Bundesliga for forever now. 
And his ambition, you know, or what he thought was realistic was that Leeds could be perennially top 10, which isn't much of a romantic pitch, but I think is as much as you can realistically offer at this stage. And it does it does kind of go back to what we've said quite a few times about promotion from the championship, that it, it kind of realigns and changes the way you have to think about what can be achieved and, and what's realistic. I don't think it's unrealistic at all that Leeds, as time goes on, could be a club who could win the FA Cup or at the League Cup. But in terms of gate crash and what's going on at the top of the division, it's absolutely miles off. We should have kicked him out when we had the chance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I would have I would have cut them all adrift and said, go go in your Super League, go and enjoy it. But, but that was part of the... Enjoy that, your filthy that, money. That was part of the debate though, wasn't it? That on the one hand, you felt incensed that, uh, about the, the arrogance of clubs saying, we're going to di- dictate what happens here and we're going to structure everything to suit our financial ends and, and our wishes longer term. But then on the other hand, you had people saying, well, perhaps in the grand scheme, it might create a better domestic competition, a more level domestic competition. I mean, this debate goes on in Scotland constantly. That you, If you rid the SPL of Rangers and Celtic, you suddenly create a really wide open field in which a lot of clubs could win the title. But then you lose your two biggest clubs and you lose, I guess, part of the attraction such as it is of broadcasters and other people looking in you know they go and and it does diminish the I, I guess the the profile that the SPL has um it's about dreams though isn't it Phil it, it all yeah, goes back it basically is. to the dreams of fans where you want to think you've got a shot at things and the longer the Premier League goes on and the longer the Premier League model succeeds in its current form the harder it's going to be isn't it because it reinforces the people at the top as we're going to get into with the finances actually in a in a minute or two, it kind of just, it cements the current order and, and that's no fun as a fan, is it? Well, like I'm boring people to death about Hearts here, but there's, there is a bit of a debate up north about the manager there, Robbie Nielsen, whether he's good enough despite his record, which is really strong, generally really strong over, over time. And I see people say, in order to get to the next level, we need somebody better, we need somebody else. And I know this sounds really defeatist, but I always think there is no next level. You know, this is it. This is, this is, as far as you're going to get because this is turning look, into like a scene from Trainspot isn't at, it look at the gap this is aye, this is where he's sat on the bench yeah. this bottle of vodka we're yeah. Scottish it's shite aye, yeah. as Tommy saying to him let's climb that hill he's like we're not going to make it to the top what are you on about let's, <laughs> let's just go home so yeah dreaming is dreaming's really difficult in the, the Premier League if you don't have the money and the structure that your teams at the very top do um, and it's it's it feels like it's getting wider than ever I think the change from the 90s as well when obviously we were all kind of growing up, is that Man United used to be dominant and were financially the powerhouse in it. But there was, and there was normally a couple of teams challenging underneath them. But if Man United had a bad year, someone else could win it. Whereas now you need probably six teams to have a bad year yeah. to, to give you any chance of winning it because they, they all have so much financial muscle that they can, they will probably get a lot more points than everyone else. On top of that as well, the way clubs recruit now is totally different to the 90s. So whereas your squads, and, and it did change quite quickly, but your squads back then were made up predominantly of British players and that's where you recruited from. If you were looking to take the best British players, the pool, the pool was smaller um, because you were talking about one country, whereas now because clubs recruit in South America very heavily and all across Europe and other parts of the world, the best players who are out there can come from anywhere. And if you have the money, you get more of them and you can stockpile in the way that, you know, Manchester City do. They've got a lot of depth. They're not endless amounts of depth. This injury to Calvin Phillips means that they've they've got an issue in the centre of midfield. But you know, your, reach is, your reach goes much further. You now have networks of clubs, which means that you can kind of do inter-club transfers and everything else. I don't know if you've seen any of what's gone on between 
Watford and Udinese mm. over the summer. But I mean, some of that you sit back and think, well, you know, <laughs> that seems um, that seems somewhat questionable to me. Um, so it, yeah, it is it is totally different. Um, and I think whereas back in, I, I still think of the nineties and and Leeds in nineteen ninety two are probably the best example of this. In the nineties, it still felt like kind of anything was possible depending on how the cards fell. Whereas these days, not so much. Leeds were actually probably the last example of that because the thing that came after Man United was Blackburn and that came from new money, didn't it? Yeah, Leicester, I think, probably jump out as the equivalent because of how long odds they were and because you just never expected at the start of that season that that the squad would go anywhere close. But as everybody says, there was a reason why they were 5,000 to 1 and that is probably because if we all lived for another 5,000 years, it would still be the title being traded around your richest clubs, as is the, the point at the moment. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And with that, we segue perfectly and neatly into um, chatting about the finances. And we're mentioning this because the Premier League distributions for money were revealed this week for last season. So we thought it might be nice just to do a little very brief explainer. We won't get too heavy on numbers because you can kind of start zoning out when you get too many thrown at you. Um, Because I want to frame it around a question of where's all the money gone? It's one of those questions you see come up on, on socials quite a lot, Phil. So should we attempt to... Like like her house. Yeah. Yeah. Should we attempt to answer that in a way that's hopefully digestible for yes. people, and you may you may choose to agree, you may choose not to uh, not to agree with what we analyse here. But here we go, right? So it was Swiss Ramble who um, broke this down. So credit to uh, Swiss Ramble on Twitter for the um, for the spreadsheet. Follow, follow them, by the way. They are yeah, very good, excellent. Very good. If it comes, when it comes to football finance, so so the long and short of it is, the Premier League money is divided equally, part of it anyway, including some of the TV money for UK and abroad. And all the commercial money that the Premier League earns from, you know, rights deals and so, so on and so forth, everybody gets 87.5 million quid. Yeah. And then there's another proportion of the money is awarded on a merit basis. So the higher you finish up the table, the more you get. It's 2.1 million per league position for last season. And then you get an extra 0.9 million per TV appearance in the UK only. So we got the 87.5 that everybody got. There's also the TV appearances gave us another 19.5 million quid. We were on TV 22 times, which is pretty high, actually. Um, versus where we finished in the league. It's sort of comparable with clubs that are pushing for Europe. Then there's an additional 8.3 million for finishing 17th. Overall, 115.1 million. And we got the 16th highest amount in the division. We got slightly more than Southampton, who actually finished above us in the league because we were on TV a few times more. Framing it around the division, Man City got 153 million. Norwich got 100 million at the bottom. So we are sort of in the bottom third, if you like, which makes sense given uh, the league position. And that's a a drop down from the, was it 132 million we got from the season before? So the drop is obviously based around the lower league finish, essentially, and slightly fewer TV appearances. So 115.1 million for being in the Premier League. And that's before you get into, you know, revenue from catering, ticket, 
shirts, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, this is a drop of about 70 million from last season. And if you break it down, it's 100, according to the accounts um, from the, the 2020-21 season, which are the most recent accounts we have, it's £110 million in central dis- distributions, which come from the Premier League, and then an extra £22 million um, on top of that from TV and broadcasting income. The best way to look at this is to analyse what goes out um, as well as what, what comes in, um, because clubs do earn a huge amount of cash and leads total turnover in the 2020-21 season was £171 million. Uh, And when you consider that in the Championship, one of the goals of the board was to pass the £50 million mark for revenue, you understand straight away that being promoted is, is the click of a finger when it comes to having more cash to play with. The central distributions of £110 million, that was only £2 million more than the wage bill, which was £108 million. So 108 million equates to 63% of the total turnover and clubs do like to operate around about a level of kind of 70% um, wages to, to turnover On that, they're, they're actually talking about uh, bringing that in as a rule, aren't they? Like these UEFA level, now what, they're going to say, so 70% of what you earn can go out on your wages and it's capped at that. Which to my mind would be a really good idea. And I think that would that's, be... That's wages to turnover ratio. It, it, yeah, it yeah. would be a good idea um, when you're talking about sensible financial management the argument I think that will come in and always does come in is that if you are a club who earn vastly more than other clubs when this um, this rule drops or a, or a rule like that is imposed, then you're automatically at an advantage because you are able to spend more on wages than other clubs. And because clubs who have a certain amount of, of income can't then just plough in loads of shareholder cash. And, and there are limits on shareholder investment um, limit uh, amounts anyway at the moment. It's not as if you're just free to spend whatever. Um, but it would, which, which is what Newcastle are finding. Absolutely, um, the the PNS rules, um, which is profit and sustainability, basically prevent clubs from just losing whatever they want to lose and spending however much they um, they want to spend. So again, to to fall back on Swiss Ramble, who detail this stuff really well, you're allowed a five million pound loss a year, but you're allowed to supplement that with thirty million pounds of equity injection, which is essentially your shareholders putting money into the club. So in any Given season, you're allowed to lose a total of £35 million a year. And over a three-year monitoring period, that's a total of £105 million. So you do have so scope. It can, it can vary, can't it? Yeah. it? It can, but you do have... So you do have scope to lose money and you do have scope to, to build up debt and to use that in order to strengthen your squad. But it means that you can't, without breaching the rules, be a very wealthy Saudi Arabian buyer who takes over Newcastle and then pays £200 million to sign Mbappe. You know, you do have limits and... That was always the thing at Newcastle. It wasn't going to be the case that they were able to just walk in and start spending whatever they liked because there are rules on this. People will argue over whether these rules are ever properly applied and there do seem to be loopholes all over the place when it comes to to bypassing them or getting out of them or avoiding really serious punishment if you breach them. But it does give you it does give shareholders and board members within a club the ability to to finance um, transfer dealings in that way. I think the, the most notable thing from the last accounts, and the reason we're going off those ones rather than last season's, is that um, the 2021-22 accounts haven't been published yet and won't be released until uh, March, April time next year, at which point we'll get a, a picture of them. But against the total turnover of £171 million, you had total admin expenses of £151 million. 
And if you take away the waived shareholder loans from the last accounts, which were used to improve the balance sheet, they were around about £21 million. So that's the owners, whether it was Radrazani or the 49ers, writing, we, writing off debts yes, essentially to them. We, we suspect Radrazani. Um, I think most likely um, loans that he's put into the club. And you'll remember that in the championship, he had to put up something like one to one and a half million a month to pay the wage bill. Waiving those loans, you can add them to the balance sheet to make it look as if you've got an extra £20 million in the account. The, the money isn't technically there, but it's removing a liability that you would otherwise have to, to pay back. So the account's improved by £20 million. But if you disregard them, the overall profit in that season, 2020-21, was £4.6 million, which barely buys you Wilfred Nonto, and in the grand scheme of transfers, buys you next to nothing. You know, that is not going to fund your transfer business through the summer. So therefore, what you need in order to... Um, to make signings, especially once you're into the Premier League and you're not getting hit with this sudden new influx of cash. You know, you, as time goes on and you stay in the Premier League, your wage bill rises, your expenses rise, you know, everything starts to meet together because, let's be honest, clubs don't tend to bank a lot of this money, do they? Um, clubs tend to spend everything that they get. And you'll notice at the moment there's a discussion going on about how more can be filtered down into the EFL. So there's been talk of getting rid of um, FA Cup replays of certain clubs who are in Europe not having to feature in the League Cup. This is a, a bit of a, I guess, a, a bit of a make-weight for the Premier League throwing more cash to the EFL. There are loads of clubs in the EFL who are a financial mess anyway. And it seems to me that while grassroots and the lower levels could definitely do with much more investment and should be getting it, the more money you give to championship clubs, the more they're just going to spend, mm -hmm. I think. And Someone was telling me last week about a particular player in the championship, not of any great note, who's earning £37,000 a week. And it's not difficult to see the problem there and to, to realise that that isn't particularly bright and it isn't sustainable. But the issue you have is that in the Premier League, the wages are going up and up and up. So when players are no longer kind of Premier League standard and are looking to find clubs elsewhere and championship clubs want to sign them, they have to stretch themselves and, and push the boat out in order to, to afford them. But if you are making a, a overall profit of £4.6 million, in order to buy players, you either sell some of your own players or you get your shareholders to put cash in themselves and, and to do it. There are other means, of course, if you can find somebody who will pay a load of cash to sponsor your stadium or if you can significantly um, hike up your sponsorship deals for shirt, um, the front of your shirt and other areas of the club, then yes, cash income in that way but that's that's a virtuous circle though isn't it in that you need to start progressing up the league to increase the value of your sponsorships and therefore you know, unless, you, unless you happen to have some some friendly sponsors of course yes. who may be from the who may be from the same country as, yep. as your club ownership who may what choose to make a sound financial commercial investment and, yeah. and have at, met previously on, the, on several the, occasions at the yeah. very top of the market as well yes yeah, yeah but Leeds actually did really well with the um the value of the SBO top deal and then um, acquiring Adidas's kit sponsors, they, they haven't, I don't think, undersold any of the commercial opportunities. But they won't have, and, and part of the reason for that goes back to you saying at the start, they were on TV a lot, despite the fact that they were down at the bottom of the Premier League. They they have wide appeal to Leeds, broad appeal, and they draw they draw in big TV audiences. They they did in the Championship. It's yeah, the well, same I was going to say league. the example there is that Chelsea, who finished third in the league, were on TV twenty four times last season. We were on twenty two. It's appealing, yeah. No yeah. broadcasters do gravitate towards Leeds for that reason. They get they get big um, big TV audiences, um, so that explains why. But I don't think there's much room for Leeds to substantially push the commercial income. I think they're doing as well as they can on that front. And without 
you know, getting dragged back into the discussion about the stadium, there's nowhere to go with that until it's bigger. You know, until it's the size of it's increased and it's redeveloped, there isn't much they can change with corporate facilities or corporate opportunities. It to coin that old Brian McDermott phrase, it is what it is uh, until it is no longer that. So it's yeah, it's difficult. So I I understand why people look at the club and think you have a huge amount of money coming in. Why aren't you doing more in the transfer market? Why aren't you doing this or that? What I don't think is particularly relevant is applying the accounts themselves to that debate because actually to go by the most recent accounts, there wasn't a lot of cash left over when the season was was done. But as people will argue from time to time, you can look to your shareholders to put in more. Am I right in saying as well that certain infrastructure projects, which could include things like stadium and academy investment, don't necessarily fall within the the scope of financial fair play as well there are certain things you're allowed to do outside of it that was the same in the championship as well so not the entirety of your expenditure fell in because again and um, with ffp down in the fl and, and in the championship specifically you had limits to your losses that were allowed every year somewhere up to around about 40 million pounds but that didn't include certain things like you say certain academy costs infrastructure costs because they don't actually want to hinder or prohibit clubs from developing stadiums from developing training grounds, things that are going to put them um, in, a, in a stronger position longer term. That's not the idea of it. The, the basic idea of it is to stop clubs spending ridiculous amounts or excessive amounts on players and wages. You couldn't say it works, um, but that is the, the theory of it. Well, I've broken this down into a, into a fairly simple sum to see if this does go some way for you to be able to answer where has the money gone. So if Leeds were at 170 million before, Let's round it up to 200 million for this season. Then, with you know, with increased attendances, let's hopefully, you know, there's more money being spent in the stadium on merchandise, so on and so forth. Yeah, because just to add to that, um, COVID was obviously there for the 2021 season, and therefore no crowds, with the exception of West Brom on the last day. So you're about know, 12 million quid down there, aren't you? Yeah. yeah, and Leeds did say that the total cost of COVID to them um, from match days was was in excess of 20 million quid. So absolutely, let's say 200 million. So right, so 200 million is your headline figure. If you then go for wages to turnover of 70, percent as seems to be the target. That would be a wage bill of 140 million, which I don't think is unrealistic for a Premier League club, given that we were at 108 million anyway. Um, let's assume it's gone up. So that leaves you basically 60 million quid to do everything in a year. So we're talking about um, cost of sales, which includes buying in your food for you to be able to drink it, uh, sell it, sorry, not drink it. And then you've got infrastructure updates as well. So if you do 5 million on the ground or 5 million on Thorpe Arch or whatever, plus then pay transfer fees as well for players you've already bought. And we know that when Leeds came up, as Angus Kinnear told us when we spoke to him, a lot of the deals that they did then when they came up were back-weighted. They didn't pay huge fees up front. It was nothing more than about three million at a time. No, they, they never pay up front. And in yeah. fact, a lot of clubs don't ever pay up front for a player. Yeah. They pay, pay initially, they pay an initial fee. But unlike um, City with Phillips in Barcelona with um, Rafinha, that's very rare. So if you're looking at the players that we have signed and the amount of money that we spent, a lot of that seems to have become due in the last couple of seasons. So even if it's 10 million quid for Rodrigo, this summer, it's 10 million quid out of that 60, isn't it? So that's, you can see where it soon starts to disappear to. So where has the money gone? Is that a fair way to look at it? Well, if um, if we say that the turnover is at 200 million pounds and you're saying, you know, working out the, the ratio of wages to turnover leaves 60 million, did yep. you say? To look at the last accounts that we've got, the difference between the wage bill alone and the, the total admin expenses was £40 million. Pounds. The admin expenses were £151 million, The wages were £108 million. So if it's similar um, and the same thing, you can cut £40 million off that £60 million total that you've got there, which leaves you with 20 which, again, is not a huge amount. 
And if you do have other costs on top of that, if you do have other things that, that drain that slightly, then it starts to dwindle down towards, as I was saying, the point where your profit is kind of round about, you know, in single million pound figures, 4.6 as it was, and doesn't leave you a huge amount to do. I think, unfortunately, whereas it would be great to think that there was 60 million pound left over every year to spend, there just isn't. They're, they're it's not, an expensive business, isn't it, running a football not club? not a cash-rich club, Leeds, and nor are many clubs in the Premier League. There are ways of getting money, but I think you're starting to see at Leicester now that even when money is getting piled in, sometimes it, it hits a limit, you know, and, and you have ownership groups or whoever else who can only go so far with it and can't do it, can't do it forever. It's different if you're Abu Dhabi because there just seems to be no end of money there. And also with somebody like Abramovich, who's clearly gone from Chelsea, but was there for so long, he seemed to have kind of limitless independent wealth. Yeah, um, and, and these clubs, the ones you're identifying, like you look at, you know, Man City and Chelsea, they've had a 10-year or a 15-year head start in some cases, maybe like 20 years, Abramovich came in nearly 20 years ago when the rules weren't as tight on investment. So they just piled in billions of debt. And so they've got such a head start on the rest of us. And now at every opportunity, try and pull up the drawbridge as well. They're like, well, I think actually that's enough of that. Yeah, sort, which that is sort, exactly, sort of exactly what they did on Newcastle. And that, and that is why you have to fight it because otherwise it does just become a monopoly um, and it, it becomes a little cartel which you can't break into. One of the most damaging things to Leeds was that the period when they were in the EFL was so long. It's so long and, and it was so long at a, at a time when TV revenue in the Premier League was rising dramatically but wasn't in the EFL. Don't get me wrong, the, the TV deal in the EFL was changing from time to time and it, and it did increase. But it didn't increase in the massive way that the Premier League rights distribution did. You know, that, that you were talking huge figures which changed the, the potential of clubs and changed the ability of clubs to spend. And through that long stretch, Leeds did next to nothing to the stadium. They did very little to the training ground. There have been quite substantial changes to the training ground um, in Radrazani's time as owner. And I do think that's to the club's credit because it needed to be done. But... It means that you get promoted with a legacy of things that need to be sorted. Basic things like media facilities. They're about to open at Thorpe Arch a new media room up there, which they've never had. You know, they, they have places that the media use for press conferences, but they're not desi designated press conference rooms at all. This will be a specific one. And stuff like that doesn't cost a huge amount of money, but you can find that when clubs get promoted um, that haven't been in the Premier League before or haven't been for a long time, there's a bill of about five million quid in order to get everything sorted. Things like um, satisfactory press facilities, so a, a, a good press conference room for post-match, televisions in the press box so that you can see replays and, and everything else. It, it costs money to install and those are the bills that, that you get hit with. So whereas, you know, as you say, a lot of clubs have had this head start and have done, you know, like City, for example, the development at Eastlands has been vast and has made them a kind of world leader in the game for the facilities they have. Leeds haven't been able to do any of that. And there was a long stretch where even the, the one that always jumps to mind is that, you know, that summer where the talk was, if Fabian Delph is sold, as he was to Aston Villa, it will give Leeds money to buy back the training ground, to buy back Thorpe Arch and to, to activate the buyback clause, which was about to expire that year. It didn't happen. So it's not their property. And as far as I can tell, it's never going to be their property unless some negotiation comes further down the line. And yes, they do want to move to the city centre and there's been talk of a new training ground in the city centre to make it more accessible. But the fact is they've been paying huge amounts of rent on Thorpe Arch as they, have been, as they were for a long time on Ellen Road as well. And that handicaps you, it does. So whereas other clubs have, have all this stuff in place 
and, and avoided those sort of same liabilities, Leeds are still dealing with quite a bit of it. Critics are going to hear this though and say, you're just defending the ownership for not putting money in. And no, no, I, don't think we, I, think, no. I think what we're trying to do is, is just explain the situation as we understand it. Um, but it is there a fair criticism of the ownership and the, the two owners that we've got that are sort of hovering around this uh, 50-50 split. It's 56 Radrazani's Group Acer and then 44 for the 49ers. The ownership could put in more money, um, but I think that's a, d- a different discussion to where's the money gone from the accounts, if you know what I mean. That's that's what I'm saying. The accounts kind of make the point that in order to sign players, you either sell some of your own, i.e. Phillips and Rafinha, or you look to the boardroom for, for equity that, that lets you lets you do deals. I think if you're being fair, you would have to say that in the first two summers in the Premier League, nobody was sold. You know, it was an outlay of, in, in terms of total value of the players that they were signing, it was an outlay of around about £150 million in return for nothing in. This summer gone has been completely different in that the, the transfer business has been give or take and they've probably spent slightly more than they've um, earned from those two sales. But there's very little in it. You know, Phillips and Rafinha in the end were worth about £90 million, um, a little bit more combined. And I think the answer to whether they should or could be doing more depends entirely on how you, your season goes, depends entirely on how you perform as a team. If the signings turn out to be good, and the team falls into line and does well, then you would say that the, the recruitment has been sensible. If they don't, and part of the reason for that seems to be because the squad isn't strong enough or the, the, the strongest starting lineup isn't good enough, then yeah, that's where, that's where the fingers will be pointed. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the areas of great investment at Ellen Road is, is the academy. Undoubtedly, they've, uh, they've put resources into developing um, the facilities at Thorpe Arch, separating them out. Um, investment in players, obviously, we've seen a lot of that as they try to increase the quality of the, uh, the, the 23s and now the, the 21 squad, as it is. And all this um, nicely dovetails in with the release of Academy Dreams, which is the docuseries on Amazon again, streaming from, it's today, Friday the 23rd of September. I watched the, uh, the first episode this morning. You've seen a couple, Phil? The academy has never been in better shape, I don't think, or not in the time that I've written about the club. And again, that that is helped by being in a division where it is is easier to invest. But it has, I think, been the priority of this ownership group to to put money or throw money in in that direction. And the one thing that jumps out to me is that whereas you can't pretend that Leeds haven't produced high-quality players over the years, and one of the people who appears in, in the earliest scenes of this documentary is James Milner talking about how important the academy was for him, I think what you see now is across, say, for example, the, the under-21 squad, a higher calibre of player generally in every position. 
it's not to say that there's a Milner in there. It's not to say that there's anybody as good as Delph, for example. Um, although I think there are some massively talented footballers um, in this group. But what they've they've managed to do is to create a squad and create a group where you do actually think that a, an awful lot of these players, if they don't go on to be Premier League regulars, will be Championship regulars, for example, or will have very, very good careers. When I was down at Millwall watching Charlie Creswell last weekend, I was in two minds looking at him thinking... Part of me can definitely see how he becomes a first choice centre back at Leeds and, you know, plays for years and years in, in top division. There's also the chance with him that he doesn't quite reach that level. But if he doesn't, I think he's guaranteed to have an extremely strong career in a division like the Championship. I think one way or the other, he is going to be a, a really good footballer who is going to make a good amount of money out of this and is going to make himself a really good reputation. And I think. Everything will just depend on, you know, the scale of his development probably over the next 12 months to, to two years. But there is the potential there for him to be a, a Premier League footballer without any doubt. And it is it is thriving. I mean, it, it's been pushed up to Category 1 level, obviously, which was important. I know they were relegated last season, but I don't think you can point the finger of that at the academy the spo- or the squad. Bloody, spoiler alert, Phil. Well, yes, yeah. <laughs> just, just in case um, you didn't know, close, close your ears, yeah, they, they went down. I, I went for a, a sit down with, I was saying earlier, for, uh, with Gilhart and Greenwood yesterday. We just did a sort of quick fire 10 minute Q&A and Greenwood was joking about the fact that they go into the first team squad and you're trying to stop Leeds going down. You drop down in the 23s and you're trying to stop Leeds going down and it's almost that thing of maybe it's us, you know, like, <laughs> Maybe it's us. And Gilhart said, you know, it was doing my head in that I go into the 23s and they were struggling as well. And the first team looking like they were in trouble because I don't think he felt as if either squad should have been. You know, he said, he kind of watched what we were doing every day and felt as if this shouldn't really be, shouldn't really be happening. But the the bottom line with the, the 23s as they were last season was that a huge number of those players were being co-opted um, for the first team squad because the first team squad was so thin. And actually, as you watch the, documentary and we won't talk too much about what's in it because it'll spoil it for people but they start the season fairly well and there's nothing in that at all to suggest that there's trouble coming and that does I think make you realise the the kind of the gradual creep towards the point where the 23s were no longer the 23s and and while Bielsa was having to pack his squad with your players from a lower level so were they. It's a little bit like the first team isn't it you can see the echo maybe it affected the whole club it's almost like a, I don't know a, a car with its handbrake off at the top of a hill it just starts very very slowly rolling away from you, you think oh I'll be able to get in that and then you re- you realise it's a car plummeting down a hill and before you know it it's you know it's running away from you yeah I think so and that's I, I, I suspect if you'd done a documentary about the first team last season it would have been slightly different because they as, as Liam Cooper said over the summer it just never got going last season did it at any point it just never got on a roll and there was always that air in the background of things being not quite right or not not quite heading for a, a happy happy conclusion. The, the thing about these documentaries that, that has to be said is that they're produced by Rad Rosani's um, broadcasting studio, Neo Studios, um, his broadcasting company. So it is a, essentially an in-house documentary or it's done with the, you know, the club's permission and the club's oversight. And I was making the point after the second Amazon series, um, Take Us Home, you know, about the first team and about the Bielsa era, that if you watch season two and, okay, accepting that COVID kind of kicked in and all, all was there um, and, and made, we will have made some of the broadcasting and everything else difficult, there was no mention at all of Augustine, Jean-Kevin Augustine. There was no mention at all of um, Kika Casillas' racism charge from the FA. You know, 
it, it's not a it, it's not Watson all in that sense. And in, in season but, one, there was quite a lot of uh, he's very tall and handsome about um, the chairman and owner as well. I noticed that. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I have to say, if I was uh, if I was funding <laughs> a documentary, I'd want them to call me tall and handsome. <laughs> Sadly, which. Neither would be true. Yeah, he's short and he hasn't look at shaved him. again. Look at, him, look at him light up the room as <laughs> yeah, he walks in. Yeah, oh, he's shaved. He's healthy well Scottish pallor. Well done. Um, but I like the, I always like the little bits of nuance in these, you know, the, the, the teeny tiny bits that you pick out. There's a funny point where Sean McGuck's fighting to work out how to get a bin bag out of the bin. Um, there's a bit where Max Dean um, has gone on a sunbed for, for too long to really sunburned. Um, it's, it's the bits that humanise them, isn't it? Yeah, so also, and I did know that Leo Helder had been born in Nottingham, but I didn't expect him to have quite such an English accent. But it makes sense because he's been here for ages and, and he was up at Celtic for a long time. And he sounded, he just had a kind of um, northern to Midlands accent, which sort of catches you by surprise. At first, you're wondering who's talking in the background when he's on, on camera. Um, but other little things as well, they do some stuff with Charlie Creswell and he speaks about his Premier League debut against West Ham last season um, and one of the first things you see in the in the footage is um, uh, Antonio turning him and he says you know the first thing Liam Cooper said to me after that was don't let him do that you know just step off him let him have the ball don't get tight to him because he's really strong he's really physical and he'll do that to you all day and that goes back to what's quite often said about Cooper which is that he is a really good communicator at the back and that I think is something Leeds miss when he's not in the defence that's a really, really experienced, wise pro saying to a young kid, this is what you do and this is how you, you make it happen. Diego, and, don't do any of that. <laughs> and, and, and that's not the reason why Creswell played well. Like Creswell played well because he played well, but that will have helped. Um, and I love picking those little, you know, little bits and pieces out of it. Things like Mark Jackson, how annoyed he gets in the dressing room after they, when they don't play well and, and they're, they're not performing as they should be performing kind of reiterates that point that the attitude of it's all about development at academy level and that is true to a point but it's not all about development you know there, there comes a stage where you have to play well and you have to win and if he says to... that he's just say that doesn't he like it's all about winning it's about winning that's that's andrew taylor actually at the start who um took over from jackson last season when jackson moved up to the the first team squad taylor who's the um the loans manager at leeds stepped in it was very good actually i think a lot of people looked at him and thought you know, he might be a good option for this if he wanted to do it, but but in the end, he wanted to go back to his old um, loans manager job, which actually will give him something to do this season because Leeds have have started farming players out on loan again. But yeah, it's it's that thing as well about academy football being fun in that they are a really good group together, and you know, Gilhart and Greenwood in particular are, are very very close friends. The two donuts, as uh, Creswell called them, when I went down to see him last <laughs> last weekend, um, but. Lovely guys, and they go back quite a long way. They were friends from the England youth setup long before they were friends at Leeds. It just so happened that they joined Leeds from Wigan and Gilhart's case and Arsenal in Greenwood's case within about two or three weeks of each other. You know, it's total coincidence. But they do all get on really well. They do have a really good laugh together. But then, click of the fingers, and it's all really serious, isn't it? And I was going to say, there are, there are bits of it that remind me, because we went on a, a school football trip to the Netherlands when we were in sixth form. Um, so it would have been about 17 at the time, going 18. Was there any football played on that? Because that sounds like um, that seem, sounds like carnage. I seem to recall one, one or two of the lads did get in bother and there was talk of sending people home, but I th- it may have been too much of a mission. But we did we did play some football. Yeah, we had a, we had a really good time, actually. Some bit, bit of scrapping on the pitch, but that's a different... <laughs> 
a different story. It, just to jump in there quickly, when I played <laughs> for Pennycook Rugby Club when I was about 17, we went down to Bladen for a sevens tournament. We were all, you know, we were all school kids. And it became apparent as soon as we arrived that we were playing against full-grown adults who are massive and were going to destroy us. <laughs> so what we basically did was throw the first two games in about half an hour and then all just went to the pub for the rest of the, <laughs> rest of the day. It was brilliant. Uh, um, yeah, the, the Netherlands school trip, it just it just reminded me of that, like the camaraderie that's within the, uh, mm-hmm. within the under-23s as it was then when the documentary was made. It is just like a big old bunch of mates on a school trip, but then suddenly you realise they're playing against future Premier League footballers and in Premier League stadiums, whereas we went to play in a field, you know, just outside Amsterdam kind of thing. But even aside from that, and we're not telling anybody anything they don't know here, you know that that can slip away from you so quickly. And there is there is definitely... Well, that, that is that, one of the big themes, isn't it? About yeah. how easily this can be lost. Vinnie Jones, Jones yeah. says that early on. It's like touching on the elephant in the room straight away. You know, only a, a, a tiny fraction of this bunch will actually make it at the level which they think they're going to make it or, or want to make and it. Vinnie Jones does the voiceover. He does, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should say that. Vinnie is the, the narrator on this. So you have the kind of the fun aspect of them all together in the dressing room. But when it's down to business, it is down to business. And they must, I, I asked them, Greenwood and Gilhart this, whether they think much about what Joan said, you know, that a lot of you are not going to get there um, because that is just the nature of academies and that's the nature of football. As I say, I think a lot of these players will get there in some capacity. I think they, a lot of these players will have really good careers. But it's not nailed down and it's not guaranteed. And, you know, both Gilhart and Greenwood kind of said, you know, we've, we've worked hard for this and yes, we've been lucky and this, that and the other, but you need luck and you need hard work. But also, you don't focus too much on those statistics. You just do what you do and you, you just trust that it's it's going to be enough. But you see it with academy players all the time. It looks like an amazing lifestyle, but it takes absolutely nothing for it to disappear and to be taken away from you. Yeah, there's a nice contrast as well with the uh, the sort of high level of the Premier League with those real personalised bits. And, you know, you're talking about one of the players who has kind of fallen by the wayside in terms of leads, but is still in the game. Um, Noan Kenner, who is now at your favourite club, Hibs, yes. I believe, uh, he's gone up there. He features quite heavily in the first episode, just learning about his background and he goes back to his school, things like that, which is nice just to get a real glimpse of of what these kids are, are like. And you, you are reminded that they are only kids, they are humans. Joffy going back home and you see his mum sat there, you know, beaming from ear to ear, really proud of a, of a little boy and he's looking at his old trophies and things like that there's some, there's some really nice moments in there well Ken is quite a good example of how things work out because he features in this and, and you would assume on that basis that he you know and given that the documentary crews are going to home in on players who have interesting stories but probably also have a good chance of making it you know by the time this has been released i.e. now he's elsewhere you know he's playing up in, in Scotland I think Leeds were quite keen to keep him and it, it may well in the end have been as much his choice to go and play because he was he was always going to get regular games up at Hibs. Um, but he's gone. And, and likewise, Calvin Phillips, who features, you know, who's features in the documentary, now over at Manchester City. So he, like Milner, is held up as the, you know, the 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 kind of poster boy of what happens when everything goes right. Um if everything goes right, you get to leave here. <laughs> well, you if everything goes right, you get to <laughs> you get to get promoted with your boyhood club. You get to reach the final of the Euros with England. And Stay you get a forever. Big, a big funny move, yeah. But that, that was the thing that, that absolutely killed me. And this is the one little spoiler I will put in there is when um, Calvin Phillips does a little his little talking head bit at the side of the pitch at Thorpe Arch, and he says, "Yeah, I'll always be here for the uh, for the under twenty threes to talk to." I thought you're not. Not these under twenty threes. Yeah, some under twenty threes over in Manchester. I'm oh. intrigued to see knowing knowing Kenneth because. 
remember years ago when when he kind of was first coming through at the academy, we discovered his own his personal website that he'd obviously written himself and it had really sweet and it had nice pictures of his mum and dad on it. Like, his, his, his phone number was on there, wasn't he, it? He, yeah. was, he had just had his mobile phone number on it, like, if you want anything, give me <laughs> a ring. Speaking so. of phone numbers, I, was, I um, messaged the Football Clichés podcast um, earlier this week because I noticed that Blackpool's Twitter account has its landline on there, which I thought was kind of very 1990s and <laughs> slightly weird. Dial, dial on, have, on you been, have you been to Blackpool? Yeah, I have, yeah. It's very... It's very much of that era. Yes. It's in the landline era. If you say so. If you say so. Um, but yeah, no, a couple of the things that made me laugh were the fact that any time Bielsa was videoed, <laughs> yeah. you had the feeling that the camera crew was about eight miles away with the longest lens <laughs> in the world. Hidden in some so, bushes, so, ironically yeah, enough. Which yeah. you know, it's not so different to the Amazon documentary, which he just didn't want. That's not a secret. He just did not want to engage in and, and they you know, they did not want to invade his his personal space. But there was also, there's this amusing bit where Creswell is talking about being drafted into the first team squad and he's saying, for training, he's saying, yeah, so you're a bit like a mannequin or a, a dummy, you know, on, on the pitch. And, and Bielsa did use, in some of the training sessions, he did use the younger players as, you know, kind of like human mannequins and so on, which was all part of the the training process and all part of the, the practice that, that they went through. But um, Philip sort of digs him out of trouble by saying... No, no, it's not like that. That's not how it is. No, you know, I am absolutely great. But um, teacher may watch this. What, what I, what I think, I, I, I felt this about Bielsa squad in the championship, and I feel this about the academy squad as well. They're easy to like. They're easy to like. Uh, the Creswell's a, a smashing kid, and and he was really accommodating last weekend. Weirdly enough, I saw him in King's Cross as I was going home. He had to deal with the um, delayed trains as well. He was going home for a family do back up north. And bless him, he'd, he'd got the um, he'd got the tube over from um, from Millwall, the same as me, you know. And I was thinking, if you go on to big things, there ain't going to be many years when you um, when you could be able to do that. I was saying to him, you need a private helicopter, and he was like, well, you know, maybe if I win the World Cup one day, that'll be happening. But for how, now, how old is he now? Is he nineteen? But for now, it's oyster cards. Um, he's twenty. Twenty. He's 20. So imagine that being twenty years old. You're in an apartment, what's when a Canary Wharf or whatever, versus being at home with your parents. So you're away from home for the first time. You'd be having the time of It'd your be life. Amazing. Yeah. Also, you know, it, it turns out that he's a right-handed cricket player and right-footed, but plays golf left-handed. He's probably one of those sickening kids at school who was just good at every single sport. Although my, my son is right-handed, but brushes his teeth with his left hand. Don't get that either. <laughs> That's weird. I know. Yeah. I, know. I, w- I will say, I'm, I'm, I'm sure Cresswell <laughs> has been a lot more professional than you two would have been had you been <laughs> sent down to London with a load of money in an apartment in Canary Wharf. <laughs> Absolutely. Be a good teammate. That's one of the big things that runs uh, that runs through it. Yeah, so they are trying to create good humans as well as good footballers, aren't they? Yeah, I often wonder how ruthless you have to be in an academy. They, one of the things with Gilhart and Greenwood was that they're not an identical player, clearly. They, they kind of play in slightly different positions, although part of me feels that if you boil it down, they're probably best as kind of secondary forward, which is where Gilhart plays, tends to play more often than not. Um, but both Bielsa um, and Mars saw Greenwood as a, a potential midfielder, which is where he's been he's been used a few times. But when they were with England, they were both strikers, you know. So it was direct competition for two players who were sharing a room and were really good mates and very close and in touch outside of England camps as well. And they said, you know, there was never any jealousy with that. They were both happy for each other when it was going well. But there must be, and I don't mean in Leeds Academy specifically but there must be within academy squads and academy groups that kind of needle and you know jostling for position where 
at the end of the day, if if the chance is there for you, you have to take it at somebody else's expense. And you tend to find, and I've always found this at Leeds, that academy players are usually extremely happy for other players who break through. Um, and there don't tend to be many exceptions to that. But there has to be. It's only human nature, isn't it? That thing of if somebody else is getting a run and you're not, that feeling of, I want that. Yeah. If young Pat Bamford has been drafted in for the game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can read that, the uh, Q&A. Quickfire Q&A with Joe Gellhart and Sam Greenwood on The Athletic Now. Phil's done that. That's uh, live on Friday morning. Uh, it's a good read as well. Nice little taster of uh, of what is in the um, in the documentary that is also streaming from today, 23rd of September. Well, that wraps up the show for today. We'll be skipping Monday, but we'll be back next week previewing Villa. Back to the football. Yes, just um, just one last thing. Uh, if you fancy a night out next week and you're in the vicinity of Leeds, Wednesday night I'll be doing a Q&A with James Brown, um, formerly editor of Loaded and Leeds 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 magazine, who has released a book called Animal House, will be, which is about his career and various scrapes during it um, and life. Um, beyond um, is is working life. It's good. I'm halfway through it. Um, it's very good. Yes, you've, you've listened to it all, haven't you, Michael? I, I, I was. I listened to the audiobook whilst reconstructing this stu- very <laughs> studio we're in. So no, it's it's very entertaining. So I'm sure there'll be some good stories. Well, true to form with James, the book landed last night, and I've got about three days to read four, <laughs> um, 400 pages. And if it wasn't for the fact that it's him, I would say that 99 of this book is made up. But given <laughs> that it is him. I know that 100% of it is true. So this is at the Outlaws Yacht Club in Leeds um, on Wednesday, September 28th. It's 7pm. If you want to come along, I believe it's free to get in. Um, so I do. Yeah, just five minutes from the station, that isn't it? And uh, if you want to read the Q&A with Gellhart and Greenwood, theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to sign up for The Athletic. We'll speak to you next week. The Phil Hay Show.